0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast which will feature a discussion on patients' experiences with supplemental oxygen therapy and the frustration and barriers that they face. We're fortunate to be joined today by Susan Jacobs, who is the lead author of a publication entitled Patient Perceptions of the Adequacy of Supplemental Oxygen Therapy, Results of the American Thoracic Society Nursing Assembly Oxygen Working Group Survey that was recently published in the annals. Ms. Jacobs is a clinical research nurse manager in the pulmonary and critical care medicine division and nurse coordinator at the Center for Advanced Lung Disease at the Stanford University Medical Center. Welcome Ms. Jacobs and thank you very much for participating in this podcast.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Great. So I must say that this is a topic that personally hits close to home for me. My my father actually had advanced interstitial lung disease with associated severe hypoxemia requiring supplemental oxygen. So it's interesting and a little bit disturbing to me that some of the challenges that he faced are the same 25 years later. Uh, so I look forward mm-hmm. to uh, an interesting discussion about this. Uh, to start off, I was wondering if you can give us some background on the use of supplemental oxygen in the U.S. in general and what sort of the epidemiology um, uh, of, of hypoxemia requiring supplemental oxygen.
1: So what we know from estimates is that there are approximately uh, between 1 and 1. 1.5 million oxygen users in the United States. Uh, It's estimated that about 70% of them are Medicare beneficiaries and that the predominant population are COPD patients and that's about the breakdown of data that we have available.
0: So not an insignificant number of patients, actually higher than than I would have predicted so up to 1.5 million people in this country. So uh, yes. so what was the impetus for your study? How did you come to design the study, survey, and, and what was the driving force behind doing this?
1: Well, personally, I, I, my setting is uh, interstitial lung disease and some other rare lung diseases in an outpatient setting, a lot of them pre-transplant, but sick patients. And for the last, I would estimate, three to five years, I've noticed just increasing um, obstacles to getting our patients home oxygen. Uh, On the clinician end, we are dealing with endless time increases in documentation, prescriptions, going back and forth, uh, having uh, additional requirements placed that we're unaware of, appealing denials. And then basically our patient's not getting the right equipment, enough tanks. um, They get different equipment than what we prescribed. And then from my patients, hearing that they're dealing with Inadequate systems, systems they can't manage, don't work, no calls, can't get service in a timely manner, um, and certainly not getting adequate education. So I was the chair of the ATS Nursing Assembly Planning Committee in 2015, and my colleagues nationally uh, shared the same concerns. So as nurses taking care of these patients, we um, identified this as a priority and created an oxygen working group. We had a multidisciplinary lunch meeting at ATS in 2016 with uh, a really cross section of, of um, stakeholders with additional input. And the agreement was there's a significant problem, but we had no data. There's a lot of anecdotal reports, but no data. So that was the purpose of having our oxygen work group go on to develop and complete this survey study.
0: So can you briefly describe your your study design and then we'll talk a little bit about the survey itself before we get into some of the results and some of the things that you learned from the study. So tell us about the study design and the instrument you used.
1: So it was a, a survey uh, format, descriptive report, voluntary self-report, you know, survey responses from adults living in the United States who were using oxygen for a variety of lung diseases. Uh, the content was developed from that meeting I mentioned with multidisciplinary input, uh, patient foundations, LAM Foundation, pulmonary pretension, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, uh, COPD Foundation, Alpha-1, patients, uh, AARC, Associates of Respiratory Care, physicians and nurses, So I developed a draft. It went out to all of these stakeholders for input for content confirmation. And then it was piloted with patients, both online and in hard copy form, to make sure that the patients felt that we were addressing uh, key issues. We had a methodologist look at it for just the formatting of the survey. And in the end, uh, had an online 20-minute 60-item survey uh, that was launched uh, in September 2017. Um, ATS converted our survey to SurveyMonkey format, and ATS placed it on their uh, public advisory roundtable website, and we had it also distributed uh, to multiple patient and professional sites to encourage patients to sign up on that link and complete uh, the survey. And it was also approved by the Stanford uh, Institutional Review Board with a waiver of consent, so no, no identifiers were included. And it was on so, the line for about six weeks.
0: And you got how many respondents? We got
1: one thousand nine hundred and twenty six respondents. Uh That's that came terrific. from all fifty states. <laughs> which was I know, we were we were happy with that. Uh it was placed on, you know, rehab sites, clinic sites, uh I mean basically once we posted that link, you know, there's I'm sure sites that I don't even know where it was distributed, but we wanted to get the word out to any adult using oxygen to please um, give us their feedback.
0: So how long does it take on average um, to complete the survey?
1: It was about 20 minutes,
0: so it was and,
1: uh, not particularly long.
0: And one of the things I was, when I looked through the survey, there was there any assessment, and I know this can be difficult sometimes, is there, was there any assessment of socioeconomic status? Because certainly that could impact, I guess, on, <laughs> on patients' experiences. So was there any assessment uh, any formal assessment of, of socioeconomic status? Uh,
1: there was not, and this, uh, I would say regrettably, there was not. This is something we did not ask income, education level, ethnicity, uh, which would have been important. And I, in retrospect, of course, those would have been important factors to include, but they were not included.
0: So I think with that as a background, so please summarize for us the major findings of the study, and then we'll get into some of the details and some of the implications for the long term. Because I was, I thought that the findings certainly reflected our experience at our institution, and, and certainly around the country. And I think some of the findings were so interesting, and really I think can serve as a as a launching pad for you know a lot of initiatives to to fix this or to address this in the long term. Mm-hmm. So let's start off with with some of your major findings and then we'll get into some of the details.
1: Okay, so I think the first thing is to describe the sample. Who were these people that responded? Uh, They were average age around 64. They were mostly female. Uh, Half were retired or disabled. Very few were working full time. About half were from suburban areas, roughly a quarter from rural and urban. Uh, 44% lived in competitive bidding areas but it's also important to note that 45% of the respondents did not know if they were in a competitive bidding area or not. So of those that responded, 44% were in competitive bidding, and 11% were not. The diagnostic breakdown was fairly predictable. Mostly were COPD, 39%, followed by interstitial lung disease, pulmonary hypertension, alpha-1, LAM, and uh, 5%, was just a mixture of, of other unusual lung problems. About half had used oxygen for uh, between one and five years, and a third had used it longer than five years. Uh, They were fairly sick in terms of their oxygen needs. Uh, A third of patients used high flow, which we defined as five or higher, either in liters per minute or a setting on a POC. Uh, 60% used it continuously. Another marker of this sample was that 63% attended pulmonary rehabilitation programs, which is very, very unusual compared to the national average. So we had a very highly, um, high, high number of patients attending pulmonary rehab. Uh, the other interesting finding was that 65% of these patients did not have their oxygen saturations checked on the equipment that was delivered to them. So in terms of the key findings, the, the key finding, of course, was that 51% answered yes when we asked the question, do you have any problems with your oxygen? And LAM patients had the highest number of reporting problems at 70%, followed by alpha-1 at 60% and pH at 51%, and then ILD with COPD in the least. The problems that they identified when we uh, gave them choices, they could choose more than one. But the highest problem was equipment not working. That was 499 patients out of about 800. Uh, Travel problems, delivery problems, unmanageably heavy equipment, no high flow access, not enough tanks, Uh, they couldn't change companies, no responses from the providers. And then we looked at what were the differences in the groups that said, yes, I have problems versus no, I don't have problems. You know, how could we identify kind of what put them at risk for having problems? And we found that those patients that said they had problems uh, had increased healthcare utilization. They were more likely to have had an ER or hospital admission in the past year. Uh, They were also more likely to live in a competitive bidding area. Uh, 55% of patients with problems lived in a competitive bidding area versus uh, 45%. Patients that had problems had used oxygen longer and as expected were high flow patients or continuous. So there was a significant uh, increase in problems for those patients that used high flow oxygen. The other key finding was related to education. We asked patients who educated them when they received their oxygen or had it first prescribed. 64 percent were educated by the delivery driver. Ten percent received no education and about eight by a clinician. Uh, We did find that the patients who reported uh, having no problems were much more likely to be educated by a healthcare professional uh, as compared to either receiving none or by a driver. Interestingly, there was no difference across diagnosis in terms of how they were educated. And the other key finding was that it made no difference in having problems whether or not you went to a pulmonary rehab program. And I think this really points to the fact that the education patients receive in rehab is very much focused on disease and oxygen use and uh, mechanisms, rationale, but it can't help mitigate the problems of equipment malfunction, for example, or not getting enough tanks or not getting high enough flow. That was an interesting uh, point. The other finding, which is really uh, the underpinnings of some of our current focus, is that 70% of respondents were unaware of a number or person to call to file a complaint. Um, and this is a critical finding because Medicare, Act, Medicare actually has a complaint line, uh, 1-800-MEDICARE, that can be called and to report complaints and problems that would be followed up. Uh, so Medicare is unaware of problems. And that's because this line is not used and uh, patients just aren't aware of it. The other uh, finding that we we see in our clinic, especially with high flow patients, is that patients wanted five to six hours of portable oxygen to be outside of their home. But the average amount of time they have was between two and four hours. Um, And this was universal across all the diagnostic categories. So, in summary, Our findings really document that half of patients have problems, and the problems are varied with equipment, inadequate portables, impacts of travel, poor service, lack of education, uh, and the variables of being educated, using high flow, or not being educated, I should say, needing high flow, using it longer having greater dyspnea, op-oxygen, or living in competitive bidding were all associated with more problems and also higher healthcare utilization as um, reflected by ER and and hospital visits. So I think uh, in our practice, this confirmed what we see, and I think for many of us uh, nursing clinicians that see these patients daily in clinic, Um, Some were surprising, I was surprised at the high number that the top problem patients reported was equipment malfunction, that was something I was surprised at. But the rest, uh, I would say, is, is pretty consistent with what we hear anecdotally, so it's good to have some data.
0: So really the bottom line is that this essential treatment for our patients is associated with lots of problems and really effectively doesn't meet the needs of the patients. There's problems with equipment. They're not well-educated and for patients who want to be more active and want to have an enhanced quality of life because of this activity, can't do it because of these myriad problems and um, it's amazing, again, this has gone on for an extended period of time and it would be sort of otherwise unacceptable if this were a drug, right? If this was a pharmacologic agent. yeah. this would be problematic and probably come to the fore uh, a lot sooner, so really very interesting, very interesting findings. Uh, there are a couple of things that I wanted to clarify, one is can you tell us about the competitive bidding program and how that impacts services for our patients and then the second question is, you mentioned that for areas of the country that have this competitive bidding program. So what determines what part of the countries have it and, and don't? So can you shed some light on those, on what it is, and, and then why is it not universal across the United States?
1: So uh, competitive bidding is a program implemented by CMS, by Medicare, uh, and it's required by law. And in a nutshell, this the Medicare solicits bids from durable medical equipment companies, and then reimburses those companies who submit basically the most cost-effective bid for their services. Um, Those bids are reviewed by CMS, and it's a complex formula, and I am not the expert on that formula, but the contracts are awarded to those uh, DMEs who meet both quality and financial standards and offer the best price. Actually, it's a median of the winning bids uh, for items that determine that amount. So, when a DME company is awarded that bid, they are to provide all of those uh, supplies under that contract to their beneficiaries. So, this is now implemented across the nation. Um, about as I mentioned, three quarters of patients of oxygen are are on Medicare. And I'm told that this reimbursement, these cuts have been going on roughly since 2011, 2013. They routinely come up for bid. Uh, The last one was delayed a bit, which was good news to try and maintain the pricing. So the price per patient, uh, and again, this is just within my conversations with the DMEs that I work with, as well as uh, my colleagues. You know, initially there might've been a payment of $250 per month per patient, and that got down to 150, and now I am told currently it's around 100. And again, that may vary some, um, but that just gives you an, uh, an idea of the amount of, of drop. Initially, of course, this program was put in place because there was, I'm sure, uh, wasted dollars and the goal was to save dollars and also to improve services. Uh, so the dollars are being saved, the services we think are impacted. Uh, one of the things I can touch on is liquid oxygen. Uh, DMEs are going towards what we call a non-delivery model for our patients. They want to set the patient up, for example, with a home fill unit. They give the patient that home fill unit and two tanks, and that's it. They don't have to send a driver out for servicing or resupplying or additional tanks. Mm-hmm. Whereas with liquid oxygen, there's a weekly delivery requirement because there's another tank that needs to be refilled each week. Um, to some technological issues that might need more servicing. Liquid tanks hold more oxygen and can go at higher continuous flow rates for longer periods of time. And our high-flow patients, uh, that will be the ideal system. They can be put in a backpack. Uh, Some patients are working out-of-the-house longer periods. They can fill it themselves. But we are told by DMAs they no longer supply liquid because they simply can't afford it. However, Medicare, you know, has a statute stating that if if they've contracted with them, they must apply these. So this is an issue that we are working actively with Medicare um, and all the foundations and advocacy groups to try and understand and, again, get more data. The other piece is that Medicare reimbursement, as I'm told by our groups we work with, um, covers equipment, not service. So They're not paying for drivers. They're paying for the equipment. The codes for the reimbursement codes are all equipment-based. that's another area that needs to be investigated. In terms of what parts of the country, I I don't understand or I don't know. Um, It's been rolled out over the years. I I can't tell you what pockets or areas um, are not under competitive bidding. So that's an area, I'm sorry, I can't really um, highlight except to know that most of my colleagues nationwide are dealing with patients that are, in some areas, definitely under competitive bidding. So I'm not certain which areas are not under competitive bidding.
0: It would also be very interesting to, a, interesting to look at how patients who are not in competitive bidding program areas, how they fare relative to the CBP patients, whether they do better or may even do worse um, with, with local programs. That would, be, that would also be very interesting to sort yeah. of identify.
1: Uh, yeah. Time. What we're seeing is that even those not under Medicare are subjected to the similar rates and, and constraints. I have non-Medicare patients that are dealing mm-hmm. with the same issues from provider from the DME providers. Um, but yes, I don't have real data on the differences there. It would be good to, to investigate that further.
0: So more than 80% of the patients in your study reported that they had a copay of anywhere from zero to $50 for their oxygen. So I know you're speculating here, but do you think that patients would accept a higher copay to have better systems than what they have now?
1: You know, I think they would. We gathered some data on, uh, and I don't have it, how many patients, which was not unusual, that purchase their own extra equipment. So we do have patients that get very frustrated, for example, who want to travel or who want, need to work and need, for example, a second portable concentrator to put under their desk, or they need a concentrator upstairs because they only have one downstairs and they're having to get up and downstairs with no oxygen to get from one area to, to their concentrator uh, or liquid. So they are already spending money on extra supplies, cannulas, extra batteries for their portable concentrator so they can be out of the house longer. So I think if they were given a choice, if this was a high-flow patient or working patient, uh, patients that are very mobile, they might choose to take a higher copay in exchange for portability that gets them out of the house extra hours per day. So that's just my personal opinion, but I, I think, uh, it would be an option that could be offered.
0: I I I agree with you. I I suspect that patients who can would would, would in fact pay more out of pocket to get a better system. Um mm-hmm. my observation in the past few years um is that really there's been uh, you know a lot less innovation in the development of oxygen delivery devices. you think reimbursement has impacted on on that?
1: You know, I, I mean I can't help but think it has. I'm not clear where those dollars would come from. If there's leftover dollars from uh, DME companies that they're saving with uh, competitive bidding, would those go into technology? I mean, I think they should go, of course, back to the patient. But in the big picture, um, I agree. There's been very little progress, for example, in portable oxygen concentrators. Uh they pretty much max out at a continuous flow of three, I think perhaps maybe four. Um somebody mentioned they thought there was one now that provided four. And it's really limited by the battery uh mm-hmm. and the ability to get that room air um pushed through those uh you know, extracting sieves and and, and and purify the oxygen. Uh that motor and battery size hasn't changed much since and I've done this a long time. Um, So and I'm in Silicon Valley with Tesla and everybody that I keep thinking should be putting money into, uh, you know, smaller batteries, longer-lasting batteries. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. There
1: has been, I will say, in the last uh, year or so, there's been some interesting innovations um, that are looking at some more like grants and awards through foundations uh, to do some R&D. One area is a remote control for patients that can change their flow. So if a patient's on two liters at rest and they need to walk up their stairs or do work around the house or whatever, they can change their flow without having to go upstairs to the bedroom to, to the concentrator. Um, and there are also some research looking at uh, flow loops so that the cannula would sense a drop in saturation and would automatically increase their um, their oxygen device flow rates. Mm. Um So there is there has been I think just in general this attention to oxygen is creating some awareness, but it's certainly being done more outside of uh, uh, certainly outside of 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 insurance groups and and Medicare. But uh, I think I have to have to ask where is the incentive? You know, would it be a bundled piece of equipment that would go out with every DME delivery to a patient? They would have a remote control. Then there's some incentive. For that developer to get, you know, financial. There's um, a lot of patients using oxygen, as we mentioned. Mm. So it's certainly a needed area, and I agree with you. There's been very little progress. Um, POC was the biggest progress. Patients can fly with that oxygen. That's been right. a huge boom. Yep. But since Great. then, you know, if you want to get uh, higher flow, six nine pulse on a concentrator, you're looking at a twenty twenty two pound. Uh, quote, portable <laughs> oxygen concentrator. So it's not so affordable anymore. And our patients, you know, there's a lot, I should just want to put in, there's a lot of direct marketing to our patients um, without us healthcare professionals knowing. And they see these commercials with this very nice, cute little 1.82 pound POC and they want to purchase it. And it's, you know, sometimes $3,000. And in six months, their oxygen needs may outstrip that POC, so we have to be very involved in our patients when they're thinking about uh, and assessing their oxygen needs and and purchasing equipment on their own. Right. So we need the innovation,
0: absolutely. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Susan, in your opinion, I want to move on to some of the important impacts that your study has raised and and how we could as healthcare providers can impact. So what is the lowest-hanging fruit, in your opinion, that we as physicians and nurses and other providers can most effectively impact on with regard to all the oxygen problems that you identified? What's the single thing that we can probably impact most, in your opinion?
1: I would say the single thing is that at the time a patient is prescribed oxygen, it should be mandated that that patient receives an oxygen fact sheet of some sort with the 1-800-Medicare number, a bill of rights in terms of what should they expect from their DME and their healthcare professionals, reassessment, retesting. They are unaware, Medicare is unaware of current issues, and the patients are unaware of, of how to proceed with problems. So we desperately need data, and the patients desperately need that education and support. So if there was a mandate that with that prescription, this patient must sign off on receiving basic education, their bill of rights, and who to call uh, with problems. That's probably, could make the biggest difference for the patient and would get these problems documented. We need the data to document whether or not there are problems, and we think there are, but we need that data. And the patients need to be empowered to understand what to expect and, and uh, what action they can take when they encounter problems, both with their clinicians and with their provide, their uh, equipment providers. I think that discussion also at that time of prescription needs a, a review of realistic expectations with that patient. Dysmia is not going to go away. Uh, we don't have great data, but I think that patient education and managing those expectations are critical. And, you know, for the clinician side, one of the things that delays oxygen delivery to our patient is getting those orders right. You know, ATS and and, uh, groups can work to have a standardized template. Um, We use EPIC, so we can use a dot phrase, so that Mm -hmm. that required language is in there every time, and it's one less reason to have that prescription bounce back and delay, again, that delivery. So education for the patient Education for the clinicians probably would make the biggest difference it's very frustrating and sad that as clinicians we don't have much to offer these patients except heavy big e tanks and you know then problems they don't know how to handle um, we are their advocate to promote their their mobility exercise travel work uh, and socialization etc. so those two things patient education at onset and clinician I think could make a big impact
0: but what you're really talking about and by the way that's fascinating idea. What you're talking about really, I guess, is sort of a universal oxygen guide or guideline for the patient mm-hmm. and then guidelines for for the office practices. So who can do this? Can ATS do this? Um, should Medicare be doing this since a majority of the patients are, are Medicare eligible? What where, where do you think about that?
1: Absolutely, ATS can do it. Uh, But I'll tell you, and and Medicare has educational guidelines. Medicare has lots of information on their websites. Almost every foundation, the Lamb Foundation, COPD Foundation, have a supplemental oxygen guide. Uh, I'm part of the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, a newly formed ILD nurse network, and we're gathering information from 45 ILD care centers uh, to see what nurses give, and we all give oxygen information. Uh, the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation has a booklet, so there's information out there. ATS could act as a repository. I uh, I have this vision that there's a www.ats.oxygen.org, and you <laughs> click on there, you have wow. a tab for clinician, uh-huh. a tab for patient, even tab for DME, whatever, and it's it's there because there are information booklets and pamphlets. Actually, ATS has a very short one. You know, their patient information series? They have one on oxygen. It's very short, but it exists. So we need to somehow have a repository that's accessible, especially, as you mentioned, to the community and primary care physicians. I mean, we're all busy. I'm in clinic. To educate a patient on oxygen, it's, you know, we are running through our clinics like everybody. So we need that access. And ATS could certainly be that repository, but many of these foundations are actively working on this, along with uh, AARC, American Association of Respiratory Care, American Association of Home Care. Um, I'd also like to mention that the American Association of Home Care did a, um, they commissioned a, an outside group to do a survey, the Dobson and Debonzo. And they also surveyed patients, and they found very similar findings. Fifty-six percent of their patients said, yes, they had problems. So that data, now we have a little more data. Um, But in terms of the educational component, yes, I think ATS would be a great repository for those materials. But they are out there. It's just a matter of getting that word out. There are materials out there that are very good. It's hard to get the word out.
0: What do you think are other effective ways that professional and and sort of patient advocacy organizations can can actually advocate for patients on the topic of of oxygen and the intended um, challenges with it?
1: Get together. We need a unified voice because, as I mentioned, many of these foundations are actively advocating for their patients. Um, All all those that I mentioned, LAM, pulmonary fibrosis, uh, PH, COPD, COPD coalition, Alpha-1, we need a unified voice. We need to get data together. Uh, again, I think ATS can help be a uh, umbrella to have their governmental side work with these foundations. Uh, we're hoping to have a Capitol Hill briefing in the next month, which will be a first, which will be huge. I think it, it's getting us all together. There's many of these organizations working individually trying to advocate for their patients on oxygen. It has really hit a nerve. The the timing is universally heard right now in terms of the the problems. And I mean, there's a lot of data we don't have. For example, we need more data on benefits and long-term, you know, we have some COPD, but we need to better hone in on which patients benefit the most from oxygen. We also need to hone in on which patients are getting oxygen and no longer need it. And save our dollars there. Yep. You know, one Absolutely. of the impacts is that we, we don't have respiratory therapists in the home anymore. Our patients don't get tested, they don't get retested. So, the whole area of discharged patients, we have unknown patients out in, on oxygen that don't need it, and dollars could be saved there and moved towards these high flow patients, for instance. Um, one study in Canada showed that 40% of their patients on oxygen are no longer qualified. So, I'm getting a little off track, but we need to bring all this information together. And work uh, with a unified voice and I do think that ATS could be that umbrella um, of bringing these these foundations and advocacy groups um,
0: together are you uh, and your colleagues planning uh, any next steps uh, now that you've got some data yes
1: well it first is to get this data out to our lobbyists our governmental representatives senators representatives we also as I mentioned we had uh, I co-chaired a oxygen workshop last May with uh, Dr. Dave Letter on optimizing supplemental oxygen therapy, and we spent eight hours with 28 people in a room with no windows, and uh-huh. including Medicare and uh, DME national provider, the NIH, the FDA, patients, physicians, respiratory therapists, nurses, and came out with uh, recommendations for education, research, uh, everything. And that is in the middle of being prepared as a manuscript. So those recommendations will be formally published uh, and I hope will also be referenced as documenting the need for change. Um, And part of that, because our CMS ombudsman was there, uh, we now have been regularly communicating with with CMS. And as a clinician, uh, educating them and them educating us And that's huge. So it has to happen for them to understand what our patients are dealing with. And also I'm hoping that Medicare can provide us some data and help us understand where the problems specifically lie. So that oxygen workshop, and then out of that, we do have recently funded another ATS uh, workshop for this coming May, which will be a clinical practice guideline for oxygen, which is the first time. And that will be co-chaired by myself, Dr. Dave Lutter, Dr. Ann Holland, and Dr. Jerry Krishnan. And that will look a little different direction, but really looking at evidence-based data for how we prescribe oxygen. And, you know, all of this information, I think, just strengthens um, our voice. But we need data, and we need the education piece. Uh, So I think the workshop publication, the guidelines, and hopefully, getting an audience on Capitol Hill. I mean, these are, I think, huge strides. But it is the big undertaking to make change in the reimbursement structure and the education. But I'm optimistic. We have a lot of energy right now, a lot of energy.
0: Well, you know, I look forward to the publication of the guidelines and, and seeing the your data and, and further data being disseminated across a wide range of uh, stakeholders. So this is uh, very important work, and I think the survey is really, again, I think brought some of these issues to the forefront. So I applaud you and and your colleagues for for taking this on. Uh, As we come to the last few minutes, just a couple of things. I'd like you to just, again, come back and give us a couple of two to three really important take-home points that you want the clinicians who – Tune into the podcast, take away from this. And then any other last thoughts you have on this topic, uh, um, I'd love to hear.
1: So for clinicians, the one point is please encourage your patients to report any problems they have to 1-800-MEDICARE. This seems to be one data collection area that's been lacking. So if Medicare doesn't understand that there is a problem or it has no data, um, then there isn 't a problem, so that 's the one instruction to, and to the clinicians. Give your patient that one sheet of paper, maybe double sided I hope with a little more o- oxygen education, but certainly instructions on who do I call when I just can 't get an answer or help with my oxygen problems and disseminate the existing documents that are there for oxygen education i can 't emphasize that enough that These problems could be uh, mitigated, some of them, with education, Uh, and especially reaching out to primary care and rural patients. So reporting problems when they exist and providing your patients education, I think those are two key points. And our nursing assembly and all of the groups we've worked with are very much open to any suggestions on how to, A, get this information out, get patient education materials out, clinician education. Uh, So we are very much open to any suggestions on how we might uh, impact change. So as I said before, I think we've hit a nerve. Uh, It's very timely. We're getting a lot of responses. So I am very open to receiving any communication to work with all these advocacy, patient, reimbursement uh, groups to find a way to improve our, our services for our patients that are on oxygen.
0: Well, Susan, I'd like to thank you for joining the podcast today. Uh, this has been a terrific discussion, and I think uh, you've given us a lot of things to think about. And on top of that, I think your study results have also yielded some, some tangible things that we as individual providers uh, can do for our patients, including reporting problems and, and and really trying to hone in on on the proper uh, educational materials for our patients. So so thank you very much, Susan. And for our audience, I hope you found today's discussion on our patients' experiences with supplemental oxygen as informative and provocative, frankly, uh, as I have. And until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for joining in.